Thank you for that. I'd like to invite you this morning to open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2 as we jump back into our study of this great epistle. And as you find your way there, you know, I think it's fair to say that our society, our culture is concerned, if not obsessed, with dieting. You know, it's the end of April now, and I wonder, I wonder how many have stuck to their New Year's resolutions. Probably not many. But the health and fitness industry just in 2021 was a $33 billion a year industry. Elimination, grapefruit, ketogenic, raw, carnivore, vegan, low carb, primal, juicing, cleansing, fasting, paleo. Those are just a few of the diet books you can buy at Barnes & Noble or on Amazon. You know, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, Paul reminds us when he says, Bodily discipline is of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds the promise for this present life and the life to come. Now, I'm not trying to tell you that dieting or, or, or good health choices are useless, but Paul puts it in perspective where he says, Do that, do those things, but just know that it's of little profit. You know, his, it's not of no profit. Right? It, it, there is profit there, but it's of little profit. But Paul's main point there is, is saying, maintain your eternal focus. He main, maintain your eternal perspective. In our passage this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll see one single command, but three ingredients to ensure spiritual growth. Three keys that leads to healthy living. Three aspects to understand how the believer can mature. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Peter tells us what type of diet the Christian ought to have. Right? We don't need, as Christians, to try these fad diets to try to figure out how we can grow spiritually. We only have one option. We have one source of food to advance and to grow our spiritual lives. So let's read together, follow along as I read it, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, laying aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. See, the Christian diet is the word of God. We are to crave it. We are to nurture our desires with it. We are to intensify our intake of the word of God. We're to have it constantly in our lives. You see, if we're able to grow in respect to salvation, then the word of God is key. That's exactly what Peter says. There's only one command. The sole command of our passage this morning is to long for the pure milk of the word. And so that's the focus of uh, our message this morning. It's the focus of the passage. So everything in that revolves around this idea that we need to figure out a way to continuously and consistently desire the word of God. It's essential to our spiritual growth and it's essential to our spiritual maturity. And so since it's been a while since we've been in 1 Peter, let's put our passage back into context and refresh our memories of where we've been to understand where we're going. So remember, Peter, he's writing this book, 
He's, re- he's writing this book to Christians, and these Christians have been persecuted. They're traveling from city to city, and they're escaping this persecution. And so the way Peter motivates them to, to maintain their faithfulness is to remind them of their eternal inheritance. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 4, that's exactly what he talks about, the eternal inheritance. And this inheritance is undefiled. It's unfading. It's protected for you. And not just that, but if you look at verse 5 of chapter 1, you yourselves are protected by God. See, you'll be just like Christ as you enter into eternity. In this life, Peter says, hey, stay faithful because you have an eternal hope. You have a living hope. And because of that hope, then there are some ways you need to live. Chapter 1, verse 13, he says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Make sure that you're committed to holiness, right? Be holy, for I am holy. That's the way we are to to conduct our lives. We are to be committed to honoring the Father as we move towards eternity. And the simple fact that you've been redeemed, that you've been purchased, saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ results in a life that's holy. And as we move through this life as aliens, being persecuted, reviled, scorned, there's a place in this life where you can have joy. There's a place where you can find a little bit of rest. And that's within the church. That's within the church where we have true Christian community. At the end of chapter one, that's what, what Peter says, right? Each of you is to have a sincere love for one another. A heartfelt, constant love for one another is the hallmark characteristic that should dominate the believer's life. That is a love that's sustained by the word of truth, which is God's word. So the effort that we put into living holy or sanctified, loving lives is sustained then by the scriptures. That's what supports what, what our efforts are. And so that brings us to our passage this morning. And, and in our passage, we'll see these key ingredients for spiritual growth. You'll see them in your notes. It's very, very simple. And I, I basically, I just used verse 1, 2, and 3 as the outline, right? Eliminate the sin. Eliminate the sin. Crave the word. There's the command, the command of our passage, crave the word, and taste his kindness. Eliminate the sin, crave the word, taste his kindness. And so we'll take each one of those in turn. All right, number one, we must eliminate sin from our lives. We must eliminate sin from our lives. We must take an active stance against sin. Look at verse one. Therefore, laying aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, This is the first ingredient for spiritual growth. Remove the sin. Peter starts the verse here by saying, laying aside, laying aside. This picture that Peter is painting here, uh, it's it's this picture of our idea of taking off your clothes and laying them aside. You have dirty clothes on, you take them up, you lay them to the side. And this take off, put on language, if you're reading through scripture, should be familiar to us as as we read through scripture. You know, Last week, I was able to take three of my kids uh, to our, our, our friend's barrel race. And if you're not familiar, uh, a barrel race is this female rodeo event where the competitor takes their horse around three barrels. They go up and back in a looping fashion. 
and the rider can choose whether to go right or left, but they cannot hit or knock down one of the barrels, or else it's an instant DQ, disqualification. And I said I took three of my kids to this because one of them is allergic to horses. And so after the event, on the way home, I prepped the other kids in the car, say, telling them what exactly we're going to do right when we get home. As soon as that garage door closes, closes, you need to strip off all your clothes and those clothes go straight into the washing machine. And then you go straight to the tub because we don't want to get our other kids sick. Right? That's the image that Peter uses. It's, it, it's the same thing that Paul uses in Romans chapter 13, verse 12. Lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. Again, it's the same image of taking something off and putting something on. Paul writes, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Colossians chapter 3, verse 8. Same language. Put off all these things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy talk. Even the apostle James says it in James chapter 1, verse 21. Laying aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. See, the New Testament expectation of every single Christian is that you remove sin from your life as soon as possible. That's your old way of life. That's the old way of living. Leave that all behind. And now that you're living for Christ, you're to put aside everything that calls you back to the old life. That means old habits, old lusts, old desires, old fantasies. Whatever is in your life that predates Christ and is sinful must be taken off and excommunicated from your life. And you might ask yourself, well, are there any exceptions? Is there anything that I can hold on to? Do I have to give it all up? Well, look at verse 1. What's the word that's repeated there? All. 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 Three times. All. Everything. And so those words, it creates these three categories of sin. And we'll go through it really quick. All malice. All malice. Malice basically means all sorts of evil. It's a general term. It's nothing specific, but it's anything that's immoral in your life. That is to be removed, taken away. And Peter here is talking about these inherent sins. Whatever's happening in your mind, whatever's happening in your heart, every single square inch of your life ought to be evaluated. And if malice exists there, then you're to completely obliterate it. In other words, you cannot domesticate any sin in your life. All evil is to be radically uprooted. And so the second category of sin we see, all deceit, hypocrisy, and envy. It's a triplet. They put them all together. All deceit, hypocrisy, and envy. These all cover your interactions with other people. It's outward focused. Deceit means craftiness. Craftiness. It means being cunning. It means having guile. It's actually the word used in ancient Greek to refer uh, to fishing. Right? In order to be a successful fisherman, you must deceive that fish into thinking that there's a bug on the end of the line and not a hook to yank him up out of the water. Right? It's that deception. Peter uses that language here to say that that's the idea of deception. When you're pretending to offer one thing, but that thing is actually a lie. Which leads us then to our next uh, sin in the, in, the in the category. It's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. So we're to remove all lying, all deception in our life in regard to other people, but you're also to remove hypocrisy. 
In chapter 1, verse 22, just a few verses above this, this is exactly the type of love that we're to have for one another, right? Love that's without hypocrisy. And that is a sincere love. And now just a few verses later, Peter emphasizes again that your, your life, your love ought to be free from any hypocrisy. And you might have heard this defined or described on the, uh, with the ancient actors that used to uh, go up on stage, right? The actors, actors were hypocrites, right? They would, they would wear masks and interact with the crowd and men would often play women's roles and they'd need a mask to mask who they truly were. It's a life of inconsistency. It's a life without integrity. A hypocrite is not the person that they pretend to present themselves to be. If you're a pretender, if you're a fake, if you're a fraud, Peter says you cannot grow as a Christian. You cannot advance in sanctification. We must evaluate the hypocrisy in our lives. And all of that is to be removed. And really the path of hypocrisy is really an easy road to go down for the religious people, thinking that they are better than most. Jesus has uh, really harsh words for the, for the religious elite who, again, were just hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites. So ask yourself, are you tempted to be hypocritical? Peter says then to make sure that you have put away all hypocrisy. And interesting enough, if you look at the text, it's, it's, uh, you don't see it in the English, but it's a, it's a plural, right? It Remove all hypocrisies because there can be many of them in your life. And so not only deceit and hypocrisy in this category, but now envy, envy. This word is also plural. Remove all envies in your life. Get rid of the various expressions of envy in your life. Envy is just jealousy for the possession or the successes of others. Remember back in Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments, this is, this is prohibited in scripture, right? You shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife's servants, animals, or anything else that belongs to him or her. You know, it's so tempting to be envious of other people. But the temptation usually doesn't come with those who are ahead of us, right? You know, I have no hope of amassing Elon Musk's net worth. I, I don't envy him in that way. And conversely, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be envious of someone who might have less than me. But the temptation kicks in hardest when I compare myself to my peers. You know, they got a new car. They moved into a new house. You know, they are so attractive, They were hanging out with the people that I wanted to hang out with. They got a new job. You know, they're so funny. You know, they just got married. You see, Peter tells us to evaluate the potential expressions of envy in your life. Are you envious of someone's status or friendships or possessions or even worse, spiritual gifts? That's what happened in the city of Corinth, right? In the church in Corinth. Everyone was comparing their gifts with one another. And so we evaluate our lives and rid them of all malice and all hypocrisy and all deceit and all envy so that we can live a life of holiness. And this last sin category Peter brings up in verse 1 is slander. Slander. Slander is the primary tool to carry out our envies and our deceits and our hypocrisies and our malice. Slander is speaking lies about others in order to injure them. 
It's malicious talk. Sometimes it might be half-truths, but it's said with a lying attitude. And when, when we say those things, it's just, it's, it, we say it in such a derivative way or in such a degrading way that it becomes spiritually a gruesome attack on someone else. And so we must consider, why, why these five sins? Why these five vices? Because they all illustrate pride. They all illustrate pride. And this pride will lead to the relational downfall and it will lead to broken relationships within the church. Spiritual growth best happens in the community of faith. And so if you have issues with other people which are always going back to these related sins, you're not going to grow individually because then you're not supported by the community of faith. In the church, growth cannot happen in a culture of disunity. He says it. Right? Clear away. Evict this from your life. And to use the words of John Owen, he says, mortify your sin. Murder your sin. Get it out of your life. Deal with that sin. Repent of it. And, be, and then be unified in humility with one another in the church. And so Peter, he's reinforcing this kind of love that we are to have for one another. Right? It's a love that's free of malice, free of hypocrisy, free of envy, free of deceit, free of slander. And so if you're living free of all those things, then you will mature in Christ. And so that leads us to our second point or our second ingredient in, uh, this morning. Our second component to spiritual growth then is we must crave the word. We must crave God's word. This is the command in our passage. Look at verse 2. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Long for the pure milk of the word. Crave it. Desire it. Yearn for it. See, if you're not doing the first step, that ridding your life of sin, then you'll never crave it. You'll never desire it. You'll never yearn for it. Peter's trying to illustrate the importance of this, uh, of this command by using imagery of a mother and a baby. Right? Just, like, just like a new baby has one thing on its mind, so the Christian is to have only one thing. One pursuit, one fixation, one obsession, one commitment, and that's to the word of God. Just as a mother's milk is the best nutrition for a baby's growth, so God's word is the best source for the growth of our souls. But there's something else here. Notice, if you look at your text, the pure, the pure milk. Literally meaning it's unadulterated. Right? And we know we know that babies develop a special bond with their mothers when they nurse. And Christians also then develop an intimacy with God when we feed on his word. Peter uses such a simple and obvious yet profound illustration to remind us of this reality. You know, have you ever been around a newborn? You know, they really do not care. Who knows that they're hungry? They don't care. They have no dignity about it. It doesn't matter who you are or where they are. They'll just blurt it out, right? They'll try to communicate the best that they can. I'm hungry and I need it now. They don't mind the time of day, who hears them. They try to get what they want. They are undeterred from expressing their desire to want to eat. See, they get upset when food's withheld. Restless when they've gone too long without eating. But when they come to the bottle or the breast, they find immediate relief. 
a calming satisfaction. So let me ask the same questions about us and our relationship with scripture. Do we ever come to the point where we don't care who knows that we're hungry for the scriptures? Have we ever gotten to the middle of our day in a conversation and just said, hey, you know what? I'm sorry, but this is important and I need to have time alone with God right now. You know, babies, babies have a one-track mind when it comes to milk. How about you when it comes to getting after the scriptures? We live in a time where you can buy all different types of books and tracing philosophies of scheduling babies to eat. Right? Moms and dads will stress out and plan their whole day around the baby and their feeding times. How about you? Scheduling yourself to have a quiet time. How about a schedule where you feed your soul every four to six hours? Instant satisfaction when you come to the source. Contentment when you finally are alone with the word and communing with the father. Peter says, long for the word. Desire the word. Passionately hunger after the word. It means that you care about you care about and desire to plumb the depths of the pages of scripture. Psalm 1 says the same thing, right? How blessed is the man who walks in the word. But there are times, if you're honest, there are times where we don't desire the word. And sometimes maybe our response is to say, okay, well, I'll just sit and wait until that desire just comes back. But Psalm 119 has a lot to say about that about reviving that hunger back into our lives. When we're knocked down and out for the count, how do we revive ourselves for that hunger of the word? Short answer is open up your Bible and spend time in the word. Spend it there. Listen to this. Psalm 119 verse 25. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Make me understand the way of your precepts so I will meditate on your wonders. Psalm 119 verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. Psalm 119 verse 88. Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Psalm 119, verse 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me. Psalm 119, verse 107, I'm exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to what? Your word. Sustain me according to your word that I may live and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Psalm 119, verse 154 and 156. Plead my cause, redeem me, revive me according to your word. Great are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. Psalm 119, verse 159. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. You see, this restoration of desire for the word of God comes from nowhere else but the word of God. The answer then to revival is that you need the word of God. It will revive you. It will refocus you. It will reset you. It will rejuvenate your desire for the word of God. And so Peter says, crave the pure milk of the word. And the word of God here, it's the opposite of the adulterated, deceitful, envious, hypocritical slander. Right? The word of God is pure. The word of God is truthful. 
And so Peter called it the word of truth. If you look back to chapter 1, verse 22, and through the obedience to the truth, we've purified our souls. And so in our desire to want to eat and drink the pure milk of the word, then what's the, what's the goal? What's the, end, what's the end goal of all of this? If you look at the verse, so that you might grow in respect to salvation. That's our goal, spiritual growth. The Bible is the instrument for spiritual growth. Jesus said, your word is truth. Sanctify them by your word. See, the Bible is the only means for spiritual growth. And I hope, I hope that Jeremiah chapter 15 verse 16 describes your commitment and your experience with the word of God. And this is what the prophet says. He says, when your words came to, the, came to me, I ate them. They were my joy and my gladness in my heart. For I've been called by your name, O Yahweh, God of hosts. How amazing would it be if that was the case of us? This is the expectation for Christians, right? This is what will advance your Christian life. And and in those times when you forget or you get derailed, let verse 3 be a reminder to you. Here we find our third ingredient for spiritual growth, and that's taste the Lord's kindness. Taste the kindness of the Lord. You see, the allure of the world will become bitter compared to the kindness of the Lord. Recently, we had the opportunity to take my father-in-law out to a fancy dinner to celebrate his retirement. And we went to one of those, one of those fancy special restaurants that you only go to on fancy and special occasions. You know, we had an amazing meal with appetizers and steaks, but it wasn't until the waiter came out and asked us if we wanted dessert when things got real. <laughs> you know, he, the, the waiter described this apple pie turnover sort of dessert that was on the menu. And he said, it was like an apple pie calzone. You know, I've never had an apple pie calzone. So the waiter tried to, to search for something else to how to describe it. And he said, he said it was similar to a McDonald's apple pie. Now, I don't know what type of McDonald's this guy has been going to, but this dessert that we ate was so good that it ruined all McDonald's apple pies for me. Right, this restaurant ruined those McDonald's apple pies because from now on, I'll be searching for something, like I'll be searching for that taste again, and I will never be satisfied with a McDonald's sugary, fake, imitation apple pastry. It's just not going to happen. But tasting the kindness of the Lord will change your taste of every other kindness and every other pleasure in this world. Now that we are born again and on a diet of pure milk of the word, you can sit and reflect on what God has done for you in his greatest expression of kindness. Peter's referring here to Psalm chapter 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34 was just on Peter's mind as he wrote this. He alluded to it in chapter 1. He'll quote from it from chapter 3. And the psalm here, Psalm 34, it's written by David when he's reflecting on his life of running away from Saul. And he ends up in the city of Gath. And Gath is just, it's the city where Goliath is from. And as David writes Psalm 34, his life is in danger. And this is what he writes in verses 8 through 10. 
Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear Yahweh, you his saints, for there is no want to those who fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who inquire of Yahweh will not be in want of any good thing. You know, I think that Peter understanding the context of that psalm where David has been exiled and went through the desert wilderness for decades, he says, you know what? It's the same thing for the first century church. They're exiles. They're strangers in a foreign land. They just lost their homes. They're being persecuted. They're looking for comfort and for peace and stability and freedom from this persecution. And he says, Psalm 34 perfectly applies to that situation. And so Peter adopts it and he says, remember Remember and taste the kindness of the Lord. You who find refuge in him, taste the kindness of the Lord. And so if you need someone to follow as an example, just look at David's life. How many times does David exalt the word of God in the Psalms? It's over and over and over again. David expresses his love for the word of God. He finds refuge in the word of God. And so we can take that same thing for us this morning. Whatever is happening in life, whatever, if, if there's good, if there's bad, there's, the word then is our refuge. So why should it be any different? If it was that way for David, why should it be any different for us? God has been kind to you. God has been kind to me. And as we reflect on that kindness, then it motivates us then to fulfill verse 2 to long for that pure milk of the word. And if you're a believer and you can't think of the kindness that God has offered to you, just look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though being rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty might make you rich. Matthew eleven twenty eight. also, Jesus says, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you know what that word easy could be translated as? Kindness. For my yoke is kind and my burden is light. Look at the Lord's kindness in Romans chapter 2 verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of the, and the kindness of his forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is what brings you to repentance? So spend this afternoon coming up with more examples of God's kindness to you. Think about it. You can text them to me. I don't mind. Text, text me the, the ways that God's been kind to you. I'll worship with you this afternoon. But I'll ask you, have you responded to the kindness of God in your life? Have you repented? Have you recognized that you are a sinner who is in need of God's kindness? And all he asks of you is to bring all your sin and place it in front of him. And he promises to forgive you and welcome you into his family with open arms and saying that there will never be a moment of judgment that he'll send on you for that. All you must do is to believe in Jesus Christ as the only Savior, and you will be forgiven. That's what 1 John chapter 1, 9 tells us, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Literally, every unrighteous act. That's the promise, because the Lord is kind. 
And that kindness will lead you to repentance. Either that initial repentance for those who are not a believer, those who are not a Christian, but for the Christian, that same kindness leads us there because we, we repent or it's an ongoing repentance, right? Charles Spurgeon, he said, the Christian life is a life of repentance because the Christian life has sin in it. And so we continue to sin, so we continue to repent. And it's the kindness that brings us to the moment of that recognition of repentance. And so how, how do you advance in the Christian life? How do you grow? Three simple ingredients. Eliminate the sin, crave the word, and taste the kindness. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful for Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending your son to die for us. For it's in that act we see your kindness. The kindness, not just of the Father, but the kindness of the entire Trinity. Help us to never neglect that kindness. Let us never take it for granted, but always savor it and use it. Use it as a prompt in these moments of, of the wilderness or dryness as we, as we fail to advance in our Christian life due to our sin. God, please, I, I pray that you'd launch us out of our comfort zones, out of our addictions, out of our coddling of our sin that we refuse to give up. Father, expose all our hypocrisies. Remove all the envies. Forgive us of all our deceptions. And please help us to follow you wherever you may lead because we know that wherever you take us, we will always find your kindness. We pray this because we love you. And we'll say with Peter, Lord, you know that we love you, even if our choices don't always prove it. Lord God, we love you.